Good evening again, church. Um, I'll be bringing us our Bible reading for tonight, coming from the book of John, chapter 3, verse 1 to 21. John chapter 3, verse 1 to 21. I shall begin. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. You are a teacher. Come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is now everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus, said, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in, but in order that the world might be saved through, through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because, the works, because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest, he work, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is this evening's reading. Um, it's great to see you all. Um, it's been many years, but it's great to see you all. And I hope that ministry is going well, uh, this side of Joburg. Um, as we look into the passage today, the title of the sermon is Conversations with Jesus. When David asked me to come and be a guest preacher, I told him we did do a, a short mini-series at St. Paul's some time ago called Conversations with Jesus. And we're basically looking at two conversations Jesus has with two very different people. The first one is Nicodemus, the man we will meet this evening, and then the second is the Samaritan woman at the well. If you do have an opportunity, do please go read John chapter 4 as well for the second conversation. But listen to the way that we introduced to this passage, look, look at the way that the, the narrative begins. By God's grace, 
there will be some slides as well that will appear behind me. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Let me pray for us. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We praise you for Jesus. May we not take his words for granted this evening, but may we hear, understand, and believe, and in him find life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I wonder if any of you had the privilege of meeting your favorite celebrity. The most famous person or the most important person in your life at a particular time and you thought to yourself, great, I've got an opportunity to not only meet them, shake their hand, but maybe even have a conversation with them. Have you ever had a cup of coffee with your favorite celebrity? Some of you may have had the privilege of meeting someone as important as Nelson Mandela. I don't know by a show of hands who can claim that. Some of you, maybe when you met him, if you got an opportunity to shake his hand, you thought, I probably won't wash my hand after this. Because when he was still alive, he was the most famous person in the world, widely respected as a leader throughout the world. Someone who's really admired to the extent that when celebrities came over, whether it's Will Smith, about Beyonce, whoever it is, they would be prepared to pay big bucks to have a lunch, a supper, or a coffee with Nelson Mandela. First slide. But a story is told. There's someone who actually had the privilege of working for Nelson Mandela that attends one of our churches in Christchurch, Blegari. He used to be part of the security team. You can think of them as the bodyguards of the president. And he tells stories about Nelson Mandela because they worked together. He used to give him briefings early in the morning and say, Tata, this is what the day looks like. This is how we can protect you, and this is how you can cooperate. He tells a funny story about how Nelson Mandela once received advice, romantic advice, from the Honorable Bishop Desmond Tutu. I'm sure we're all familiar with who those people are, right? And so the conversation goes that uh, Bishop Tutu went to Mandela and said, Nelson, you know, you really need to bring this courtship of yours towards Russia to an end. You need to finally get married to her. doesn't matter that you guys are old, but you need to set a good example as a former statesman, and you need to finally get married to her. And Nelson Mandela replied, far be it from me to take advice from a man who wears a dress. Whenever you hear a quote from Nelson Mandela, you're expecting something political, something quite profound, something about reconciliation. But I think that story reminds you that he was just a regular man as well, isn't it? He was normal. He even had a sense of humor. But the only people who can give you that kind of insight are people who knew him personally. Instead of reading about it in a book or listening to speeches, it's that kind of window into the normal life normal conversation over a cup of coffee that will give you that kind of insight. Baby Jake Matlala, a famous boxer, in admiring Nelson Mandela, said one of the biggest lessons he learned from the man was he was told by Nelson Mandela that no matter how famous you are, 
whenever you meet someone, always introduce yourself. In fact, when they met, Baby Jake says he was surprised, but Nelson Mandela said, hi, I'm Nelson. And of course, Baby Jake thought, of course you're Nelson. (laughs) You kind of don't need to introduce yourself. But the lesson was about humility, isn't it? That it is courteous, it is respectful. Don't just presume because they know you. You don't need to introduce yourself. Just do it. And those kind of stories, they make him seem normal, isn't it? They take away the sense of legendary status about him. Another one that I heard from this bodyguard is about how on one occasion they were doing election campaigns in 1997 in Katlehong. If you're familiar with South African history, next slide, you will know that we once had a time in the 90s where there were serious conflicts between the IFP and the ANC. Buipatong, Katlehong, if you're familiar with those stories. Well, there was a time when Nelson Mandela actually went door to door, and it so happened that a group of men who clearly represented Inkata Freedom Party were approaching on the streets, carrying spears, Nemikonto, Nezakila. And as they approached, they saw him, and this was an ideal opportunity. Mandela is a legend of the ANC. If ever you wanted to make a name for yourself within your group, surely now is the opportunity, isn't it? And so the bodyguards were very concerned. But those men, they went down on their knees. Whoever was commanding them, he said a command, they went on their knees, and Nelson Mandela pushed his bodyguards aside and said, excuse me, I want to have a word with them. And he said something to the effect, we may disagree in terms of politics and ideology, but that's no reason for us to not speak. It's a typical scene, isn't it, that we'd, 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 expe- we'd expect from the man famous for reconciliation. Well, you might think it's an admirable thing to do, but later on, the bodyguard took issue with him, went to the office and said, Tata, what you did was unacceptable. In fact, the rest of the security team, they felt very undermined and disrespected. It's our job to protect you. It's our job to make sure that you're completely safe. There were about 70 men out there, armed and dangerous, and you just ignored protocol and approached them. It's quite courageous, isn't it? Not many people would walk in through the office of any president and call him to order. And yet that man, he took the courageous step. But Mandela's reply was to apologize and say, apologize for me to the rest of your team. I didn't mean to put your jobs at risk by putting my life at risk. Can you see that? It normalizes him. Those stories, they're special insight into the man, the myth, the legend. And they almost make him human again. They give us a side that we don't normally see. And I think for many of us, we would love to meet with our favorite people precisely for that reason. Well, through these conversations Jesus has with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, we have that opportunity. We're like a fly on the wall as Jesus speaks to people one-on-one. He's not preaching to a crowd of 5,000 or 4,000, but he's having a conversation and it gets personal and he has something to say deeply to them. But as onlookers... Perhaps we need to think to ourselves, how is this a mirror of what Jesus might be saying to me this evening? And as Nicodemus arrives, he comes in the evening. That's the first thing we're taught. There's three points I want us to reflect on this evening. 
Is Jesus really just a rabbi, as Nicodemus perceives? What does it really mean to be born again? And I want to invite you at the end to come into the light. So have a look at the way this passage is introduced. We told of a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, a member of the ruling Jewish council who came to Jesus at night. And he says, Rabbi. Now, why are we told what we're told about Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. What does that mean? These guys were experts in the law. They were the religious scholars. They were the guys who knew the Torah inside out. They knew it so well, they would themselves debate it at synagogues. And when Jesus would join them, they wouldn't just sit and listen, but they would ask him questions, throw him some trick questions. Moses says this, what is your interpretation? Now, for most of us, we imagine that if Jesus walked into the church, certainly now I would sit down, give him the mic, and we would sit and listen, isn't it? But these guys, their attitude when they listened was one of intrigue and interest. But it was one where they wanted to critique what Jesus was saying. Who is this man? Why does he make the claims that he makes? Is he a kosher rabbi or is he a heresy? What is he all about? He comes to Jesus at night because he's got some genuine questions. I don't think we should purely see him as a cynic ready to reject at the first opportunity. But I think he wants to seriously examine these claims of Jesus. But unfortunately, in the book of John, when you accept Jesus, you get excluded by the Jewish authorities. You become considered an outcast. Often you have to choose between being acceptable in the religious establishment or accepting this Jesus. What's more important to you? And so Nicodemus comes at night. In the cover of night, he comes and he affirms that Jesus must really be a teacher from God. Look at what he says in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you perform unless God were with him. Can you see that first verse? So pride, we're in the first verse, eh? verse 1 and verse 2. Now what, what Nicodemus seems to acknowledge here is that Jesus is at least a profound preacher. And that's in keeping with the signs that Jesus has performed. Because what we're told in the end of John's gospel is the point of this gospel is not to give a detailed account of every single thing that Jesus has done, but to tell us enough that we may know who he is And seeing him for who he is, we would accept him and have life. If you have a look at um, the end of John's gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 30 and verse 31, which will come up on the screen behind me. Verse 30 says, Jesus performed many other signs or miracles in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Can you see that? All the things we told about Jesus, they matter because they bend us, they bring us to our knees, and as we believe in him, we find eternal life. That is the point. And yet as, as Nicodemus acknowledges the signs, he doesn't go as far as accepting Jesus as the Messiah, Son of God. He says, by evidence of these signs, I know there's something special about you. You're a profound teacher. You must have been sent by God. Jesus probes him further and says, very truly, verse 3, 
I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's not enough to acknowledge like many of our friends, many of the people that may be surveyed on TV on the streets and say Jesus was a famous man, misunderstood, but he was a great man. He was a profound teacher. He wasn't the savior of the world that was just put into his mouth by his disciples. Or he was a great prophet, a great prophet who died, not the claim that Christians made that he is God himself. You see that it's not enough to acknowledge Jesus as merely another historical figure. As the favorite celebrity of first century Palestinian Jews, you've got to bow to him as the son of God, the Messiah, and in that find life. That's the point of this whole gospel. And as Nicodemus gets to get a tutorial with this Jesus, as the narrative in the gospel is paused, he walks in, he says, Coco, Jesus says, come in. He asks a few questions, and Jesus again and again, if you look at the structure of this passage, Jesus has to say very truly, very truly, I tell you, listen carefully. Can you see that phrase? That phrase comes up in verse 3, verse 5, verse 11. There are certain things that even Nicodemus doesn't seem to understand. And Jesus constantly has to say, truly, truly, I say to you. The first one he says that shocks Nicodemus is truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And so Nicodemus asks, what do you mean by born again? Surely I can't enter my mother's womb again and be born again. This is quite something for Jesus to say to an honorable Jewish man, a leader of the Jewish council, you cannot inherit the kingdom unless you're born again. You see, one of the things that Nicodemus would have prided, prided himself in is his Jewish heritage. Remember who he is. He was one of the guys who taught the Torah to people as they gathered at the synagogue. If anyone had religious credentials that qualify him to get into heaven, it would be Nicodemus. If you threw the question, Nicodemus, when you die, and God says, why should I let you into heaven? Nicodemus would give answers like, well, I'm part of the ruling Jewish council. I will have you know, I'm a Pharisee. We keep the law to the T. The Torah, I've memorized it. When I was 13, they said it was one of the most impressive bar mitzvahs they've ever attended. In fact, we often had debates at the synagogue, and I would win. Can you see that? He's the kind of guy who would say, I was consistent at church. They never complained about me. I actually served. I never came, attended, and left. I wasn't just a Sunday Christian, but I was one of those people who came to Bible study regularly. I was even assigned by David, Gareth, and Royden to lead one of the Bible study groups. I don't know what you call them here, uh, if it's home groups or growth groups. Life groups, yes, yes, yes. Life groups. I was in relationship, not just with the people of the church, but the key people. You know, I bought David that price stand that he uses to host people. Can you see what he's doing there? He's pointing at his religious credentials. He has confidence in himself and what he's done. Perhaps he has confidence in his identity. I was born in this church. You see that pew that's at the front row, the third one from the front? If you have a careful look, it's got a plaque on the side. It's dedicated to my family. My family helped build this church. I don't know if you've heard people who speak like that who have a reserved seat somewhere that is not written, but it is known 
They always sit here. Can you see that? Nicodemus might have that kind of self-confidence. Can you see that? He's part of the religious elite. He's the kind of guy who would think he has merit to be accepted by God. That he's already got citizenship into the kingdom of God. That if God has to send a Messiah to finally consummate and establish this eternal kingdom, he's one of the allies who will be recruited quickly and say, let's sort out this broken world. And yet Jesus confronts him and says, Nicodemus, you're part of the problem that needs to be sorted out. And yet the tragedy with Nicodemus, his blindness, is that he thinks he's stuck in traffic. He doesn't realize he is the traffic. I don't know if you're familiar with that illustration. It was a billboard. It said, sometimes when you're stuck in traffic, you think, oh no, I'm stuck in traffic. But to the driver behind you and next to you, you are the traffic. Well, with Nicodemus, he really can't see that Jesus has come for someone like him. He's come to examine Jesus. That's his initial disposition. Rather than bow and surrender, pleading for mercy. He throws questions and says, what exactly do you mean? How can I be born again? I mean, I'm a child of the covenant. This is one of the objections the Pharisees often raised to Jesus. We're children of Abraham. Where are you from? We know where we're from. I mean, look at our heritage And yet, verse 5, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. What is Jesus getting at here? He's saying it's not just about your heritage. It's not just about your qualifications, Nicodemus. It's not just about what you've accomplished in life. Perhaps not many of us pride ourselves in the credentials that Nicodemus would hold up. But how many of us think we're acceptable to God because of our own religiosity? You know, I've always been a faithful Christian. I'm not a hypocrite. I was never disciplined. I was never made to stand up and an announcement told about me and the way in which I've betrayed the faith. How many of us pride ourselves and find security in that? And we think to ourselves, surely God will accept me. For some of us, it might not look like spiritual things that we count on, that we lean on, that give us self-confidence, but it may be other general human achievements. How many of you are familiar with South Africans who would, as they pose, the, the question is posed to them, why should I let you into my heaven? They might not say, well, You know, I was a committed church member who did this and that for the church. But they might say, you should know, I passed top of my class at varsity. Anyone would love to employ me. In fact, I had to turn down KPMG, Ernst & Young, and McKinsey. You will want me in your heaven. Imagine what I could contribute to your GDP. Some of us, we build ourselves up to become these uber-qualified people that any first world economy would cherish. And we pride ourselves in those credentials as if that is what gives us security, fulfillment. We spend our whole lives building towards that. Someone asks to have a conversation, a relationship with you, invites you to have a one-to-one Bible study. You think to yourself, how does that build my resume? In other words, that's not what I'm about. I'm not about that life. 
And yet as we come face to face with God, the Heavenly Father, we cannot say to Him, look, I'm an engineer, right? You need me. There's a lot of bridges that need to be built in that heaven of yours. I'm one of the best civil engineers you'll find. In fact, I applied to move to New Zealand, Canada, and Perth, and they all accepted me. You see that as South Africans, sometimes we build ourselves up, and there's this utopia, this, this place that we want to move to, where we think we'll finally have arrived. We'll finally be happy when we're driving Teslas in Vancouver, as if that is what we're living for. And yet when it comes to eternal questions such as those being discussed by Jesus and Nicodemus tonight, none of this stuff really matters. You cannot present it to God and say, look, Lord, my qualifications, the things that may have been impressive back on earth in Midrand or in the office in Shanton, they're not as impressive when it comes to these eternal questions, isn't it? It's not about self-confidence but it is about Christ's confidence. It is about leaning on what Jesus has done, putting faith in him and what he has done. The biggest sign in John's gospel, of course, is that he will be raised from the dead. He will die and he will be vindicated, winning victory over death and sin. Will we see that and believe, or will we keep leaning on the other things we're trusting? Will we keep being content in our achievements rather than bowing to this Jesus. It's not about your heritage. It's not about your religion. It's not about any of your achievements. And yet Nicodemus still has questions. Verse 10, Jesus asked him the question, you are Israel's teacher. You're a great rabbi, right? Said Jesus, Do you not understand these things? Verse 11, very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. It's the last point we're going to look at. We've seen Jesus is not just a rabbi. We've come to understand a little bit better what it means to be born again, but will we come into the light? Will we come into the light? That's one of the ideas that Jesus touches on again and again throughout this passage. He throws out an invitation to Nicodemus. It is a famous verse that I'm sure it's been our favorite bumper sticker and it's on our fridge. But it's the go-to verse if anyone says, oh, you claim you're a Christian. Tell me something from the Bible. We'd mostly go to John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world... That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. They have not relied on the only hope that God has put out there. They have not believed in God's one and only Son. That's quite something for us to hear today in our very politically correct world. Where Jesus being the only way might be my opinion, Rafa's opinion, Gareth's opinion, they're entitled to an opinion, but it's purely subjective. 
They mustn't be politically incorrect and claim that Jesus is the only way to the Father. How dare they, isn't it? We're in a world where I'm not considered short. I'm vertically challenged. What's your language, eh? Where someone else might be saying, no, you can't say that. They're horizontally challenged. Where kids participate in sport, and who wins? We're all winners. We all get awards, right? Easter egg hunt? No, no, no. Let's share the eggs, Johnny. Yes, you found seven of them, but we're all winners in the end. The lines are blurred, isn't it? We've been conditioned to think everything's subjective. It's up to what meets your fancy. But when it comes to these questions, the question of eternity, when it comes to who Jesus is, who's the real Jesus, here is the claim. He gave of his only son that whoever believes has eternal life. And those who do not believe, they stand condemned already. Can you say that? It is a heavy passage. Sometimes we emphasize the good news. You'll have eternal life. But let's listen carefully to the warning. Ignore this great news and you stand condemned already. This is what ignoring this great news look like. This is how Jesus interprets himself. Verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light. Their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. One of the most threatening things about the gospel might be that indictment, that you're a sinner in need of salvation. That despite your accomplishments, you still need Jesus. You need him as much as your cousins you left unemployed in Tembisa. They don't need Jesus more than you. You still need Jesus. You may struggle with self-righteousness, with self-confidence, instead of leaning in Christ, but even you, Nicodemus, you need Jesus. As we listen to this conversation and later read of the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, we, we realize that Jesus needs Jesus as much as that woman at the well. And yet, will he come into the light? Will he acknowledge his need for salvation? Will he come into the community? Will he go into the prayer room? It might be practical things. After the service, Rafa told me, there's actually a prayer room here. You can walk into a prayer room and someone can pray for you. And sometimes as you hear that announcement, you might think to yourself, that's a great idea. It's, it's brilliant for people who need prayer rooms. Thank God I don't need a prayer room. My life is fine. I don't, I don't have those kinds of problems. Can you see that? What are we saying? What's going through our minds? We sanitize our condition and we think to ourselves, I mean, I'm I'm not the best of Christians. I'm listening as well, but I don't have those kinds of problems. And as as we look at this passage, we're reminded of a man who would have said precisely that. I am Nicodemus. I'm one of the good guys. And yet Jesus says, you need to be born again. The spirit needs to work in your heart. It's not about your heritage. God needs to do a work in your heart and in your life. Listen to these warning quotes to the self-righteous. These are quotes from Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis. Let's look at the first one. A cold self-righteousness prig who goes regularly to church may be nearer to hell than a prostitute. 
C.S. Lewis, famous for writing uh, Chronicles of Narnia and mere Christianity. I'm sure we're familiar with him, isn't it? Be careful lest you be the one that it said of, you're so self-righteous, in your self-confident pride, you're closer to hell than the person you think is the most wicked. As Jesus walks into Midrand, he's not coming into your room and saying, come be my ally as we sort out the clubs where the problems are. He comes into your room and says, I've, I've come precisely for such a place as this where self-righteousness dwells. Tim Keller, who's written a book uh, called Prodigal God, where he explores the, the story of the prodigal sons. Huh? Often when we've heard that passage, we think that it's the younger boy who's the rebellious, sinful one, isn't it? His brokenness, his sinfulness is overt. It's obvious. He went out and squandered the family's estate. But at the end of the passage, surprisingly, there's this older brother who says, I've been your good boy for all these years but you never threw a party for me. You never gave me the fattened calf. But this son of yours, who's wasted money on prostitutes, he comes back and you celebrate like this. At the end of that parable, we don't know if that older brother went in for that banquet. For all we know, he stayed outside better in self-righteousness. Listen to Tim Keller. Elder brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself in order to resemble him, love him, know him, and delight in him. They're faithful and obedient to God because God will give me that breakthrough. I've been faithful. As if I've been faithful. I've been a good man. He owes me. I need to redeem my blessings. We may say it in subtle ways. We might say it in very obvious ways. We might feel it. When something unfortunate happens, why did it have to happen to me, this tragedy? Why did it have to be my family, my mother? Why did the cancer have to take her? And it's at those moments where we think to ourselves, why is God so unfair? After all that I've done for him, living for him. You see the sense of entitlement there. The question becomes, have we been faithful to God for what we can get from him? Or do we realize the best we can get from him is himself? And have we come for that? What are we most looking forward to about this kingdom? This place, heaven, let's finally get in. You, know, you get to the pearly gates. Ah, Jesus, how are you doing? Nice to meet you. You know, you, know, you remember me? Remember that prayer I prayed? Let me in. And then when we go in there, we're like, yeah, now where are the streets? I heard there were streets of gold here. Where, where's the big guy? The point of it is at the gate, you greeted him just now and walked past like he was another. You might have walked past and said, my friend, show me, show me the big thing that I'm here for. You see that? We miss the point. Nicodemus has come face to face with Jesus and he still has questions. And yet in Jesus, all those questions are answered. All our thirst is quenched. All that we've been longing for, we realize the answers are not found in other things. In the life we've been building for ourselves, they found in Jesus. And sometimes that may be put to the test. I'm not saying, you know, don't live. Um, I don't know how to classify the kind of life people in Midrand would pursue. Yeah, maybe the, the goal, the big goal in Midrand is waterfall estate. Maybe. That's the big destination. But I'm saying when that gets brought to jeopardy, 
when that doesn't come to fruition, it's not the end. You've got something far better in Christ. But will you really believe that when your dreams, your goals are put to the test? There are really three application points I want us to reflect on at the end. Three application points. Come to Jesus. So some of you, maybe you don't have that relationship with Jesus. You haven't trusted in him. And I'm not talking about praying a prayer. I'm not saying you need to have attended a Billy Graham crusade and recited a prayer. Of course, our confidence is not in words that we've uttered in a prayer. They're in Christ. But perhaps as you examine your disposition towards your goals, towards your career, relationships, towards maybe Mr. Wright, who hasn't come about yet, you realize that actually there are certain things that you long for and love more than you do Jesus. There are certain things that you feel like, I don't know if you, I grew up in neighborhoods where young guys would say that. I don't know if you're familiar with the Kavela. Um, I don't know what it's called, Gareth. I'm struggling to illustrate it for you. But it was one of the most coveted shoes. In fact, they used to put a, a plaster at the front. I never really understood that. I think it was to protect it as they walk. And there was this red one. This red one with a black soul. And often guys would say, I want to it's quite a profound statement. Think about it. If I could get that, maybe a Timberland, you know, if I could get that shoe or that Jordan, A11 Concord, yes. Yeah, if I could get that when I'm done, it's as if your life is wound up in a pair of shoes. What do you mean if you, if you achieve that? It's finished, you've done, you've, you've fulfilled your purpose in life. God put you on earth to get an A11 Concord. And yet in some other language, you're like, really? Well, friends, come to Jesus and realize that in him we found everything. Regardless of our circumstances at the time, but in him we really can go through the darkest of valleys and we can even be humble even if we find ourselves in the highest of heights. Secondly, let's do it in community. Let us be a community in the light. I know the slogan is redeemed family of servants in mission. Let's live as a family. Let's walk in the light as a family. As we grapple with struggles, as you realize and are challenged and you think to yourself, there are certain things really that I'm ashamed of exposing and bringing into the light. There are certain things that I'm not prepared to confess and be held accountable for. Let's live in the light in community. Let's humbly rely on Christ. Let's have Christ's confidence rather than self-confidence. The other day, a friend of mine, a friend of a friend of mine, protecting the identity, a friend of a friend of mine told me of how there used to be a member of a church in a middle-class suburb somewhere, and it was a tradition there within the community to hang out after the service. And as people would hang out after the service, of course, they would go to a cafe, maybe a Vida cafe, and spend as they hang out after the service. Or they would go to a Starbucks and spend as they hung out after the service. And they, they say that sometimes it would really be awkward when you are on the 25th, or, or, or on the 24th of the month. And ha- imagine it happened on a Sunday like this, where you've been holding on for dear life. The only coffee you've been having for the past two weeks is the coffee at church on Sunday. 
You've been holding on for dear life. And people say, dude, let's hang out. Where are you going after this? Let's go to Dross. And you're like, Ish, guys, I would love to come. But I've got to prepare for tomorrow. Work is going to be tough tomorrow. Rather than honestly saying, dude, I'd love to hang out. But I'm, I'm broke. Yeah, it's been a tough month. Rather than feeling that exposed, we'd rather pretend. Some people say Christians can be very pretentious. Pretending we have it all together. We're fine. And Nicodemus, I think, struggled with such a thing. In secret, as he goes to Jesus, he probably thought, I'm sure I'm fine, but let me just go get checked out. Let me just get that verification. I'm sure he'll validate me. Our friends, I'm challenging you to go into the light. Go hang out. Even if at the end of that hangout, you have to admit, as the bill comes in, and say, brothers, I really wanted to hang out. I wanted to tell you what I've been going through, that things have really been tough. The point for me was to be in community with you. You're exposed. You're vulnerable. You're like, are we splitting 3,000? And you still want to tip this guy. So as you, you feel exposed, you feel really vulnerable. But that's what happens in community, isn't it? As those blind spots appear, as those insecurities appear, and someone says, where's your self-confidence? Where's your sense of identity? Is it really in Christ? Or is it in keeping up appearances? And seeming like you live that Starbucks kind of life. Let's be real with each other. Because our confidence is in Christ, isn't it? If we have our confidence in this Jesus that we heard about last week, that we're believing in even this evening, then it's not too much to be exposed in this brotherly community that is his people. Amen? Hallelujah. He's not just a rabbi. He is our savior. He is our hope. He's our everything. He's what we're living for. We know now what it means to be born again. Let's come into the light and live for him. Let's come into the light and community and trust in him. As I fail, as I struggle, as I lean on other things, may the members in my community snap me out of it and point me back to Jesus. Amen. Let me close for us in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you for the Lord Jesus. We praise you for your grace. We praise you, Lord, that you've come even for people like us, who as the world looks on, as the average South African in Kailicha, Soweto, Tembisa, Dipsluit looks on, they might think we have it all together. We drove here. We've got work tomorrow. Our fridges are full. They might look on in envy and think, you guys are fine, May we not make that mistake. We pray, Lord, that we might be leaning on you, Lord Jesus, trusting in you, Lord Jesus, remembering that all our grace, all the love in the world is expressed on that cross where you died to save us from ourselves, from our idols, to save us from sin. We praise you, Lord, and we ask that you may use us courageously from tomorrow morning in the office to share this great good news with the many who need to hear it. 
those who see themselves as obviously lost, who might think to themselves, God couldn't be interested in someone like me. Because no one is. I'm broken and always have been rejected. May we present the hope of Jesus to that person. But may we also present the hope of Jesus to the one who would presume they're fine, who is our superior in the office, who everyone looks up to. May we remind them that they too are a sinner who needs Jesus. Work in their hearts, Lord, as you work in ours. Bow us to your will. And may we trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen, friends.